Hello, this is Sonata Allison, and you're listening to episode one of the Parallel Podcast, where we talk about sexuality as it should be. So today we are talking about, you guessed it, sex. And I'm talking to my guest, Kim Moore, but I wanted to just give you guys a quick little background of how I know her. I was introduced to a group called the Speakers of Central Florida by one of my professors when I was in my master's and he connected me with Carol and she's just been so helpful and just listening to what I wanna speak about. And she connected me with Kim because we speak about very similar things. So just grateful to have the opportunity to speak to Kim about this and let's get right into it. All righty. Well, hey, Kim. Hi there. Happy <laughs> Sonata. So grateful to have you on the podcast, as I've told you 20 times before. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to do a quick disclaimer to people who are new to me. The people close to me know that I am very straightforward to the point with my opinions. I'm not the type to just like tell people what they want to hear. So when I say to you guys that the stuff that Kim is about to talk about is stuff you've probably never heard before. I said what I said. <laughs> so <laughs> Kim, tell people a quick summary of your research and anything else you think the people should know about you. Well, first of all, let me just thank you for having me on. I just love talking about this topic and I love being able to help marriages and thank you for asking me so much. Anyway, my story started, I've been married 43 years and my story started 43 years ago wow. as a 19 year old bride who had been married six months and her Prince Charming, wonderful, sweet groom. Well, he came up to me and he basically looked me in the eye and very sweetly asked, Kim, what is wrong with you? Are you gay? <laughs> I didn't laugh then. I cried. Just tears went everywhere. And the thing is, I was not crying for me. I was crying for him. You know, I wanted him to be the happiest husband on the planet. And I had so many hangups and those hangups were religious in nature. And so I needed answers from the Bible. I wanted to hear what God had to say about sex. Now, remind you, this is 1978. So I'm giving my age away. Mm -hmm. And if you think it was hard to find answers to sex back now, it was a hundred times harder then. But one of the things I actually did find was a little paperback on the Song of Solomon. And that was the beginning of my journey. Little did I know, 43 years later, I would be in this kind of a relationship with the Song of Solomon. But what I found in that little book helped me a little bit, but it didn't answer specific questions. It did make me kind of get over some of my guilt and shame about sex because I had this thing about all I'd ever been taught before marriage was don't just don't do it. And then I had after marriage in the church, it was don't deprive. And so I went from don't to don't deprive and I couldn't make that jump. And I felt guilty when we had sex and I kept, kept felt guilty when we didn't have sex. So I was in a really bad place. And so I started seeking answers in the Bible and the Song of Solomon actually helped, but it didn't answer questions. And the more I studied different people's interpretations on the Song of Solomon, different authors and pastors and, and PhDs, everything, they conflicted with each other. And that caused more confusion. And you know, confusion is not of God. And so I just 
set out to try to find answers. And up till six years ago, and I never found any interpretation that answered in my questions. One person would say, this is wrong. One person would say, it's okay. One person would say, that was wrong. Another person said, it's okay. But six years ago, I got really angry with God. And I said, why did you give us the Song of Solomon, a book we can't understand? And all I heard him say was, it's a wedding. But it sounded more like, it's a wedding. And uh, it was such a faint thing. And I started to do research on weddings Hebrew weddings, ancient Middle Eastern weddings. And it took a while. At first I was finding nothing, but after a while I started finding these customs. And I was so familiar with the Song of Solomon. I had read it hundreds of times that when I saw some of these customs, I realized they actually fit into the Song of Solomon. Once we understand these ancient long lost customs, and we see how they fit in chronological order. That was the really cool thing. Into the Song of Solomon, then once you know what's going on, the book starts to make perfect sense. And it was literally mind blown. And so I teach these customs. When I, you know, when I talk, I teach these customs. And I also talk about it in my book. I teach them. And there you find things literally come alive. And so that's kind of the whole, in a nutshell, where it all started. Awesome. Yes. And I definitely had a quick little conversation with Kim before, and I told her to stop talking as soon as possible because she had so much good information that I wanted to share with you guys. So before we hop into what Kim has to say, I want to quickly just say sex is good. When Absolutely. people misuse sex, that's bad. When people take sex for granted or minimize it or diminish its worth, that's bad, but sex alone is good. So I wanna quickly share some, just two scriptures with you guys to back that belief up. And first is Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1:28 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And he was not talking about planting trees. Amen. <laughs> so <laughs> that was about having sex and being fruitful. And the next one is 1 Corinthians 7, 5. It says, do not deprive one another. That's what Kim was just referring to. Except perhaps for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again. So Jesus is all in favor of sex and sex often. And if you notice, it's only when you're fasting, devoting yourself to prayer, dedicating more time to Jesus when it's understandable to spend less time having sex. Now, when I spoke to Kim shortly, I wanted her to say, just explain to us the custom of consummation. She spoke to me about that. So, Kim, can you talk a little more about what that actually entails? I can. What I found is that, first of all, there's all these wedding customs. And again, they've all, they've been long lost. And one of the most interesting and shocking, I should say, is the custom they had of consummation. Back then, first of all, the bride and the groom were separated from each other for at least a year after the banquet. Yeah, I heard that. After the betrothal banquet, they were separated for a year. And there, it was called a, you know, a period of separation. And just as a little teaser, that's exactly where the, the church is right now, because we are separated from Jesus the groom mm. he, with the Father, and we were, are waiting for him to come back and get that's us. Good, that's good, that's good. We don't know when that's going to be. That's part of their customs that we don't understand. 
That is literally so. That's when the, the when he comes back to get her as a thief in the night on after midnight on their wedding day, and he takes her back for to his father's estate, and that's where the wedding will take place. They get ready. They go to later in the day towards the afternoon. They have their wedding ceremony. After the ceremony, and the ceremony, I'm not even going to tell you that. That's another spoil. I'm not going to spoil it. You have to read the book. <laughs> the wedding itself is then, after the ceremony, they go back to the father's estate. And that's where the banquet's going to be for seven days. Most people, the way we do it today, everybody goes back and parties. And then you leave and you go to your honeymoon and you consummate the marriage. That's not the way it happened back then. The way it happened then was everybody went back to the estate, the gates were shut behind them, the groom would take the tip of his robe and put it over his bride's head, which you'll, you can find references to in Ruth, and that was a gesture that was well known that meant it is now time to go into the wedding chamber and to consummate the marriage. So the first thing they did when they got back before the banquet was go into the wedding chamber and consummate the marriage. And the wedding party, including both sets of parents, would follow them to the wedding chamber. They would go inside and everyone else would wait outside as, quote, witnesses to the sacred event. Imagine your parents standing outside <laughs> during, that, <laughs> during consummation after you get married. Uh -huh. That's exactly what they did. Yikes. Here's the thing. Of course, we've heard about the virginity cloth. Well, that was used. That was done. They had a virginity cloth. They consummated the marriage on the wedding bed, which is a whole nother thing in, a, in and of itself that's really interesting. And the virginity cloth, after the marriage was consummated, the groom would take the virginity cloth and he would go outside to the doorway and hold up the virginity cloth like a trophy and announced that the marriage had been consummated, where it had the semen and the blood on it. And of course, we know too, that in other places of scripture, that the bride's parents would keep that as a document that actually, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, they would keep it as a keepsake if anybody, if he was ever to say that her virginity was questioned. So that was like a legal document. Literally. Oh, wow. It proved that the marriage was consummated, but it also proved her virginity. So, and here's the big thing, if it, she hadn't, now I'm giving so many things away, if she didn't prove, if she wasn't a virgin, she could have been killed right then and there. Stone. So, yeah, there's so many things we don't get. But anyway, at that point, when he does that, the master of the ceremony, who was there, would go to the crowd of hungry people. Now, here's the thing, nobody could eat, drink, or do anything until the marriage was consummated. You know how we sit around and wait for them to come back from getting pictures, but we have cocktail hour? No, 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 no. You could not have cocktail hour. Yikes. No one could eat or drink until the, the, the marriage was consummated. That's when it was final. Then the crowd could celebrate. And that's actually in Song of Solomon 5.1 where he says, now you can eat, drink, and be merry and celebrate their love. Mm. So it's really cool because all these things are actually in the Song of Solomon. Yikes. So it's very, very have sex. That would suck. Yeah, it really would. <laughs> and everybody, you're inside, you no pressure on you inside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they can't eat until we do this. So yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so 
as we were talking as well, you said sex is in the Bible from kissing to orgasm. And I wanted to see if you can elaborate on that as well. It is. If you look in Song of Solomon 4, which is the consummation, you will find that at the beginning, he says, you know, let's leave Mount Lebanon. And, and then they go and he starts giving her compliments. That's the very first thing he's telling her how beautiful she is and how. And then he starts kissing her. And then he starts, he says, you know, honey is under your tongue. So kissing gets a little bit more passionate. And he's talking about, then he's talking about her necklace and her neck. And he's working his way down her body, basically. Oh, and then, yeah, he's talking about how good she smells. And then he starts describing her, her breasts. And there's other parts that indicate that he's describing her torso. And some of, there's some other customs involved in, in this. But he literally works his way down to the garden, which is a woman's, a, the, the word garden was basically the word for bride. It's a word, and if you look it up in the Hebrew, it also means bride. And if you look at those words, he describes her as a locked garden, an enclosed paradise, a locked fountain. He uses all the terms for virginity when he gets down to that part of her body. And so there's a lot of euphemisms describing that these things were, were locked up waiting for him. And then after that, he literally describes her, Pat, her excitement. And I'm not going to give it all away. You got to, you know, but he describes her excitement. He describes his excitement. And, and basically, it's pretty, it's pretty erotic, the, the wording they use. It's very descriptive when you understand the euphemisms. But some of them, we use some of those euphemisms as well. And if I was to say them, to you, you'd, you would catch them right away, but some of them can be taken as the wrong way if I was to use them. Hmm. Could you give us one example? Well, <laughs> bone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's pretty Okay. That's understandable. That, when he describes himself, one of the words he uses is a spice, but that spice was, was actually something that was long and hard. Ah, gotcha. Direct. Yes. So he uses three or four of those in a row to describe. In the Song of Solomon. Yes. Wow. Yes, he does. They either stand for hardness, erection, or heat and perspiration. So, and he describes her as melting snow coming down streams of Mount Lebanon, which, which describes her excitement. Melting snow is virgin snow dripping down the mountain. So when he gets to her private areas, he's describing her excitement and he also describes his excitement. And then at that point, she literally asked him in to her garden. And then at that point after is when he goes and steps outside. You know, he says basically that I have drunk my milk. I have gone into my garden. I have and he explains those things. And directly after that, then that's when it says, eat, drink, and drink, oh, friends. Wow, you know? what a poetic so, way to say it. It's very poetic. It's very classy. It's very tasteful. But when you see the Hebrew words that I put in the footnotes, it really, it helps you to see that what God's intent was, it was these, this, this was supposed to be veiled in a very, very classy, dignified way. 
And it was not meant for little eyes. It was meant to be revealed to somebody before marriage when they were ready to know this. And so can use this book to teach, you know, teach our young people about sex. And we can you can use words that aren't as graphic as some of or as not just graphic, but as scientific or, you know, you know what I'm saying, you know, yeah. some of those words are just kind of hard to that you choke on. So, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, so yes, the marriage, the consummation of Solomon and his bride, the Shulamite are literally in there from kissing to orgasm. Yeah, that's so cool. And I remember you made a reference to the Proverbs 31 woman as well, how like in those verses, it's also included like sex is in there as well. That's right. It is. It is. A lot of people, and I read that Proverbs 31, and here's the really weird thing. Most of us know that one of the top priorities of men, our husbands, is they want sex. You know, if if you were to do surveys, they come back time and time again that one of the most important things to a husband is sex, a good sex life. So I always thought it was just totally amazing to me that sex was not in that description of a perfect wife. Okay, yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, if that's so important to men, then why in the world is that not there? And so I started studying the marriage bed. And so if you understand the marriage bed, the custom back then was that the word bed actually is a canopy type bed in Hebrew. It means it's edis. And it's a, a big, fancy, elaborate, carved, big piece of furniture that was the the focal point of every bride's dowry. It was what her parents gave to her before her wedding. And she was taught by her mother during betrothal. The main, one of the main things was to get her young, innocent little girl ready and matured for her wedding night. That was one of the biggest things and how to use the marriage bed. And so one of the things that a wife did was cover their bed in preparation for marriage. And so they made these hanging curtains that went all the way around the bed and they covered the top of the bed as well. It was like this cocoon, it was a canopy. And that was where couples went to make love. So what brides covered their bed, it was a term they used. So in Proverbs 31, when he says she makes coverings for her bed, not talking about she's hand stitching comforters. She's quilting out here. <laughs> yeah, she's not quilting. <laughs> she's not little Miss Susie homemaker. She's covering the bed in preparation to make love to her man. Wow. Never He's knew it. Saying she meets my need by covering the bed. She invites me into the bed. She initiated, actually. Mm. Gives a whole nother meaning to that term. And there's more scriptures that back that up. Yeah. Okay. And I, and you were saying that the mother will prepare the daughter for that time. Is she starting yes. young or is that usually like the, because they got married younger? Well, they started a lot younger than us, but that was because what happened was back then girls got betrothed around 14 or 15. Okay. So that was just standard age. So, but what happened was they didn't start learning about marriage until they got betrothed. There was this period of training. Oh, the year, the year that, time. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was a period of training to mature her for marriage. 
So that's when she got her marriage bed. That's when she was taught all about the marriage bed and what happened in the marriage bed. And so there's more scriptures in the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 116 talks about our, she promises him in their vows at the betrothal banquet that our bed is verdant. And the word verdant means alive, green, and flourishing. So there's a whole nother story about the marriage bed that we don't even understand because that custom's also been lost. Wow. Okay. So speaking about the marriage bed, I remember you saying that it is holy and you made a correlation to the temple. Can you explain that to the people? I can. <laughs> this is good. Stuff. Yes. The marriage bed, you know, in Hebrews, we've always heard, you know, keep the marriage bed holy and undefiled. And I, again, this is one of those passages where I just thought, okay, that just means it's, it's sort of a phrase about keeping the marriage bed holy and the holiness and sanctity of the act of marriage. But, and it does mean, it truly does. But it meant so much more to the Hebrews, because if you understand this marriage bed and what it was, and that this mar the marriage bed was this big, beautiful piece of furniture. And, and let me tell you something. They didn't skimp on the marriage bed. They spent a lot of money. In fact, most wealthy parents would start fabricating the, the marriage bed right after their daughter's birth. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And you can go online and look up marriage bed or wedding beds. And they were so elaborate. They were intricately carved. They were expensive. They were big deals. And these were like the, again, they're cubicles. They're like these little room inside of a room. Okay. And they were meant to be covered with fabrics on all sides and the top. And so that bed was considered holy. But if you understand the holy of holies, mm -hmm. then you understand that they understood it as much more than we did. We do. Because in the holy of holies, it was also this small little square cubicle covered in fabric on all four sides. And then that was put into the inner room of the temple. So they got it that this little place was a sanctuary. It was so holy. The act of marriage was holy. The bed was holy. Just everything about it, they understood it as so much more than we do. So they could make the connection. God tends to work the same way in everything. If you've ever noticed, God has kind of a pattern in so many of the things he does. And I think in the New Testament, that kind of follows the same thing in that Jesus is the groom and we're the bride and he wants to come into our little four chambers of our heart within our our rib cage in the inner room of us yeah where he lives and dwells and he wants to be and in old testament it had a little bit different meanings but we see the parallels is what i guess i'm trying to say yeah and that's really cool so you speaking about jesus reminded me as we were talking, you said that we were talking about Jesus' first miracle being at a wedding, which is like just beautiful. Once again, he's always like telling us these small things behind the scenes. But can you tell people the role that you feel like he may have potentially played? Well, there's a lot. When I studied the wedding at Cana, it was very funny because I'd heard many times, many, many people say that it wasn't that he just went to a wedding. Many people believe that he actually officiated the wedding, that they asked him, you know, 
to be. And back then, rabbis could, but not necessarily that they did. Sometimes it was a friend, sometimes it was a father figure, but sometimes it could be a rabbi. But many people do speculate that he actually officiated the wedding, which if that is the case, then it's very possible he could have been one of those witnesses that actually stood outside the wedding chamber blessing and witnessing that consummation, which I, that gave me just like goosebumps to think that God would be standing, Jesus could be standing outside my honeymoon and blessing it and smiling down on it and celebrating it afterwards. I mean, back then, I don't think we understand that back then that was celebrated and unashamedly celebrated where today we're kind of like, you know, we don't want to talk about it. The stuff in marriage, in the church, we're not talking about it. In the world, we're talking about it where it shouldn't be, where it's immorality and done wrong. But in the church, rarely do we talk about these things. But I I don't fault the church for it. I think the problem is they were kind of like me when I first got married. They don't know because these things have been hidden. These customs... These meanings have been hidden and nobody has known really how to teach it. And because there's so many interpretations on it, I think the church is afraid to deal with it because if you teach this, then somebody's going to say, that isn't what it means. I don't believe that's what it means. And then you're going to have conflict on your hands. So a lot of churches, because they're not positive what it means and they don't feel comfortable with it, we've been you know, not teaching anything. But I think now I think we have enough evidence to know that what the song does mean and we should start, we need to start teaching it as unashamedly as they did. And they celebrated. They, you know, eat, drink and marry people. They just did it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he came out with a trophy. Here's a virginity cloth. We'd be going, Oh, that's so gross. I know. Yeah. So totally different way of looking at, sex it was much more revered but it was in holy but it was also much more celebrated at the very same time yeah well everybody go and read song of solomon psalms now <laughs> song of songs or Som- song of solomon song of solomon yeah but yeah it's so cool to see how many correlations there are to us finally coming into the final marriage with jesus compared to how marriage is and the marriage bed in like the human relationship. It's so cool to see that and just see the correlations between the temple and, you know, just the custom of consummation that we don't really hear about. So just thank you so much, Kim, for explaining from your point of view, helping us understand, you know, it's okay to enjoy sex, especially for people who are newly married that aren't engaging. I remember you telling me someone came up to you one day and I guess they were married for five years and only had sex once. Right. After I I speak. And so I typically have a lot of women who come up to me afterwards and want to tell me their story. And I hear all kinds of stories. I've had women who say, but one who said, and she was very young, very attractive. And I believe she'd been married about five years at the time. And they'd only, they had consummated the marriage, but then they'd never had sex again. And it breaks my heart because, and then there were people like me who did have sex, but felt terrible, terrible guilt and shame doing it. And I've had other people tell me they didn't consummate their marriage for six months and other people that have been married 
decades and just have, they struggle with it still that sex is dirty, even after all these years. And it just was never, never meant to be that way. And it is so sad that what Satan has done is make it so flamboyant and outside of marriage and so shameful inside of marriage. And there's so many people that struggle with this. And I believe that if we can see sex as in black and white in the Bible, celebrated, I think it will set marriages free. It set me free. So that's what I hope this book accomplishes is that when people can see it right there in black and white, something good about it, because so much of what the Bible does say about sex is what's bad about it. Song of Solomon, to see the consummation makes you see what's wonderful about it. And that's what I hope my book accomplishes. Yeah, and my prayer for everyone listening to this, if you are newly married or have been married and you still struggle with this, like just read Song of Solomon and like just allow the truth to stand in your mind and just listen to this podcast over and over again if you need to, just to hear what Kim said about the truth about what's in Song of Solomon and do your own research as well. So yeah, thank you again, Kim. And I just want to give you an opportunity to like tell people where they can find you or anything you want the people to look into or look out for. Well, if you're interested in buying my book, that is basically, it literally translates the Song of Solomon from verse one all the way to 813. Every single verse is translated. I give you all of this kind of information as you go through the entire story. And it's called Unlock the Secret to Lasting Intimacy. It's the Song of Solomon decoded. So you can find that on my website, which is kimmore.net. And you can also buy it on Amazon, but my preferred method of payment is on my website through PayPal. And I would love for you also to go onto my Facebook page, my author and speaker page, Kim Moore, author and speaker, and you will get updates. I am starting a brand new YouTube channel and that is Kim Moore, Sex and the Bible. So there are several ways you can find me and stay in touch with some of the teachings and get my book or however you want to stay in touch. Awesome. So yeah, that's Kim Moore, M-O-O-R-E. And I'll put her information in the show notes as well so you guys can get that. But all right, thank you for joining and I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Of course. Alrighty, so I just want to tell you guys what my plan for the outro will be in every episode. I just want to put out a reminder to speak the truth in love, especially the way that society is now. You are either walking on eggshells or purposefully stepping on people's toes. And I just want to remind people of what 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 2 says. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. So I just want to remind you guys of that every episode that it's cool to have knowledge, but if you're it's received as a clanging cymbal, then you might as well not even say it at the end of the day. So just want to encourage you guys to speak truth and love and I will see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for listening.